financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with industry veterans Michael Hartsman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartsman. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman. Today is Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. And I'm on, as always, with my partner, Dominic Tavella. Dom, it's been about a month. How you been? How are you? How's things? Again, I'm going to come back uh, with no complaints. Uh, but I am still here in Florida, working out of our uh, Florida office. So uh have to fly back to New York eventually, soon. But uh, for now, all good, Mike. Good for you. We had our... Uh... We had our first snow literally in two years. We haven't had any accumulating snow in two years on Long Island. We had about eight inches today, but it's melting rapidly and uh, life goes on. And and Um, the kids get to enjoy it, Mike. Nothing wrong with that. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what, Dom? Other other than today, we definitely had a a blip on on the screen with the market with a little bit of a hot inflation number personally i don't think it's anything to be particularly worry about but um six weeks in for the new year and so far so good dom the s p is up about well before today he was up about five and a half percent the nasdaq was up about six and a half percent let's assume we chopped off maybe a point point and a quarter from that but all in all dom the market's off to a pretty good start this year and kind of on track what you and I talked about. Inflation's cooling. Interest rates are not going to go up probably for the rest of the year. And uh, probably interest rates will start to come down at some point this year. I think the expectations were got a little ahead of themselves, which is why I think the market was looking for a little bit of a break today. But overall, so far, so good. Yeah, I, I think, uh, um, Mike, we look at the, the markets overall through Friday, um, and your numbers were uh, pretty much spot on. And it, it looked uh, a little bit uh, like a repeat of last year where where just a handful of stocks were responsible for the majority of the gains in the market. In fact, uh, two stocks responsible for 50% of the gains in the S&P 500, four stocks responsible for almost 70% of the gains. But the economic data was rolling along and earnings have been pretty respectful. So no drama until the inflation number this morning, which honestly, I'm with you, Mike, it came in hotter than expected. But was it what, one tenth of one percent higher than market expectations? And we had a pretty, pretty healthy sell off um today and and that might continue over the next couple of days maybe the next week or so but the bottom line is um we think interest rates are lower by year end and these bumps in the road are to expect it and maybe even be be taken advantage of yeah yeah i agree you know one data point is not a pattern and the one thing that you and i were worried about and you know we we've said to our clients we've said it on on our, our show that i do think that the media was creating a, a a set of expectations that the Fed were going to start lowering lowering interest rates in March, and you and I always felt that that was a unnecessary and b unlikely, and um, I think we've been proven correct at this point. 
Yeah, Mike, and I love stealing your line. Sorry. Um, be careful what you wish for. We've, we've maintained all along that the Fed would only lower interest rates that many times under two circumstances. One, inflation just dropped dramatically, which we both said, eh, that's not likely to happen. Gradually get lower? Yeah. Drop dramatically? Not likely to happen. Second scenario, really a negative GDP print, i.e. the economy is going into a recession. That doesn't look like it's happening either, Mike. In fact, the exact opposite. The, the economy is holding up pretty well. So interest rates lower, yes. Dropping dramatically, we didn't see it. And I think you're spot on. I think the markets are starting to realize, hey, we're not going to see six rate cuts this year. Three, four has been our call. I think we'll probably be closer to reality by the time this is all said and done with. You know, you and I, two weeks ago, actually two weeks ago today, we were at the uh, New York Stock Exchange with uh, by invitation from J.P. Morgan. And most of the analysts we met with and, and listened to said exactly what you said. There was one bond analyst who thought that the Fed would, should have started lowering interest rates in October, definitely should have started in March. Um, most of them didn't agree with him. And then we had an opportunity to go to BlackRock a couple of days later, basically heard the same thing. Yeah, there are a few people in that camp that the feds went too far too fast on the upside and need to act quickly. But I don't agree with that you know, synopsis. And I, and I do think that the feds being methodical now and being patient, they learn from history. And I think this is the way for them to behave at the moment. Yeah, look, uh, Mike, and, uh, at the risk of repeating some of the stuff we've spoken about in the past, uh, they were definitively too slow in raising rates. Uh, and the mistake they might make is too slow in lowering them. But I don't think they're going to repeat that in that uh, they'll they'll eventually start. They'll be very methodical about it. Uh, they just want to be sure that, you know, they've they've kind of killed off this uh, inflationary cycle that we're in. And you know what? If they make a mistake, it, uh, listen, it might be a couple of months make a mistake, Mike. I think they might. Hey, they should have raised, uh, lowered in March as opposed to June. I, I don't think they're going to put us in a position. I don't think they want to put the economy in a position where it all goes off the cliff into a recession. Well, what's really, yeah, you're right. And and I know you, a year ago, you love talking about soft landings and hard landings and no landings. I know you really enjoyed your time discussing that topic. But, um, and I do think that now we, we, we probably will avoid a recession. But I will tell you this, Dom, the one thing that we keep hearing from our clients is yes, things are not going up Prices are not, not going up as quickly. But what truly is frustrating clients, and I think put a, putting a damper on clients willing to spend, is things aren't getting cheaper either, right? I think I think there's no def deflation on the horizon. And I think that's what's frustrating clients. And that is if, if one thing slows down the economy, it is that that a lot of people aren't buying into the idea that the economy happens to be okay. Well, uh, so let's spend a minute on that because I don't think the mainstream media really speaks about that a lot, Mike. So, and you see the current administration, the Biden administration being very frustrated to not getting a pat on the back 
for inflation coming down. Well, what is coming down is the rate that it's increasing. Mm -hmm. In English, it's increasing less fast, but it's still increasing. And anybody that's gone to, to buy a pizza or go to the supermarket or go to a restaurant feels the pain. Uh, and it is painful for a significant part of our country. Uh, we forget that half the country lives above, uh, below the poverty line, Mike. These people are struggling paycheck to paycheck or security, social security check to social security check. And when they go to the local supermarket or they go to a restaurant or go to fast food or buy a pizza, it's expensive. Expensive. And here they have the bobbleheads on TV discussing how great things are. They're not great. They're just less bad than they were a year ago. Yeah, right. They're, they're less bad. And, and, and to your point, that's person who's struggling and, that, you know, it's a, a two or three job family and, and, and living paycheck to paycheck. They don't care about the fundamentals of of the of the economy and the CPI and and the jobs report. All they care about is they have a job. Uh, and, and the good news is that jobs have been holding up pretty well. We've been adding jobs to the economy in a pretty good clip. This is all positive data. But believe me, Mike, and I, I think you go through it as well. Anybody that goes to any kind of event and spends money is shocked. I am shocked at how expensive things are and that's not likely to change anytime soon correct that's one of the questions we asked you know when we went to do our research meetings and and deflation is not on the table um Dom, we're bumping up against the break. I want to just uh, talk about our guest this evening. She's Dr. Beth Kurland. I think this conversation we had is a great segue. She wrote a book, You Don't Have to Change to Change Everything. And, you know, the topic tonight is going to be about happiness. And, and who doesn't want to be happy? And, and, and who doesn't want to make other people happy? And, and Dom, we can be in a happiness business, right? When, when the market's doing well and people are feeling good about their accounts, I think they're generally happier. Um, happier, uh, but you and I have, have encountered this so many times, Mike, it's, it's unbelievable, but it's not about the number, right? It's not about the value in that account or how well the account did the prior year. It's the expectations that they'll be able to achieve their goals, that they'll be able to retire in comfort, that they'll be able to educate their children or their grandchildren. So happiness in our world, money is not about happiness. It's about being able to achieve their goals, their dreams. And uh, obviously, I feel great that we can help them do that. But obviously, this volatility in markets going up or down uh, can take away from some of the joy. It can. And until that, until 30 seconds ago, I never actually said we're in the happiness business. So I'm glad um, we have Dr. Curland on who, who, who was able to help me shed that light. So we will take a quick break and we will be back with Dr. Beth Curland the author of the upcoming book, You Don't Have to Change to Change Everything. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. 
That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-G-A-X, le tax. Rates on cash are already so low, why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. The Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with Dominic Tavella, my partner, and our guest this evening, Dr. Beth Curland, the author of You Don't Have to Change to Change Everything, a coming book that's going to be released next month, March 26th. Good evening, Beth. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. So when Larissa in my office uh, showed me your bio from Lisa Warren, your publicist, you know, I immediately thought it would be a good idea to have you on the show because, you know, so much of what Dominic, Dominic and I do as we were talking about on, you know, before the show started, we spend very little time actually talking to our clients about their performance numbers and way more time about what our clients are trying to accomplish with their accounts with us. What's their goal? What what gives them happiness? What gives them independence? What gives them security? So when we had the opportunity to really talk to an expert about those things, we really jumped on the op- on on the chance to have this conversation with you. So again, well, let's just start, you know, from fifty thousand feet in the air, and and what is your perception of happiness as we as it equates to people's finances and money? Yeah, so I would start off with making a little bit of a distinction, and this is, you know, you could call it semantics if you will, but but. I find this is a helpful way of thinking about it, at least in our culture. And I grew up in the Northeast United States, so I'm speaking for myself personally. We often can equate the sense of happiness with um, when something happens, then I'll be happy. That happiness is dependent on external circumstances and that happiness 
is dependent on mood. And I like to think about more of this idea of well-being, that well-being is something that can actually be there for us to support us no matter what might be going on around us. So I would just say that, you know, in some ways you might be in the business of, I would just call it financial well-being, right? And how to help people really find that sense of well-being, even in all of these fluctuating and volatile markets and all of this, you know, how can we establish a sense of well-being nonetheless, even when we can't control all of the external circumstances around us. And so I think um, this idea of happiness tied to, you know, when I have a certain amount of money, then I'll be happy. Whereas um, how can we find well-being right here in this very moment, no matter where we are in our financial journey? So on, on that point, Beth, um, and again, I'm, I'm speaking for myself, but I'm sure I'm also going to be speaking for Mike. We, we often find that our discussions with clients really are about quality rather than quantity. In other words, we're looking at these dollars and you've put them aside or you're accumulating them. What is the qualitative part of that discussion? What is the purpose of that money? What do you goals are you trying to achieve? Um, and at the end of the day, we think of ourselves as as counselors, advisors in helping them achieve those goals. Yeah. And I think you're hitting upon something that I think is so important, which is instead of just focusing on the what, to focus on the why, W-H-Y. You know, um, so it's not just the what of, you know, I want to put away a certain amount of money or save a certain amount of money or whatever people's goals might be. But if we can really help people identify, I think exactly what you're saying of identifying, you know, what is the why behind, why is that important to you? What is it that you really want your money to do for you? And how does that connect with your well-being? Is it that you are looking for, you know, some kind of sense of security long term? Do you want to leave um, some kind of a legacy or, you know, money to your children? Do you want to make a contribution in some way in the world? Uh, do you want to have more money for fun activities, travel, whatever that might be? But but that it can be really helpful to identify what what's really important and of course this will vary from person to person in terms of what their why is and connecting in with that meaning and purpose exactly like you said so to that point and this you know so so dom and i both have clients who if we don't stop them would go flying through their money in a matter of a, a few short years. Mm -hmm. And then we have other clients, many of our clients, most of our clients, who never ever call us for money. Um, so, so to me, there's this fascination with people's relationship with money. So, you know, is that it's the one person who is always spending the money looking for immediate gratification, and that's what makes them happy, versus the client who wants that cushion, kind of wants that war chest. And I don't know if that makes them happy or just gives them a sense of security. So, you know, is there a way for you to show us how to how to tap into those different emotions and 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 you know people's relationship with their with their money? 
Well, I guess, you know, in some way, I mean, that's interesting, right? You have people on different ends of the spectrum, some who may spend and, and go through money maybe too quickly at times, you know, other people who are just saving and saving and, not, and maybe not even then being able to fully enjoy, right? you know, uh, their their life um, in the way they may want. And, and so how, again, being able to really help people identify um, the meaning and purpose behind that, you know, it, so it's it's not always about immediate gratification, although sure that can bring kind of a temporary pleasure, I think. Um, but really understanding, you know, what gives people meaning and purpose in their lives and um, and then how do we help them create the experiences to do that, even in small ways. So there's the, yeah, when I have X amount of money, then I can retire, then I can do this, that, and the other. But but being able, I think, to just say, with what I have right now, what's really most important to me? And can I find small moments today, this week, this year, to be able to do some of the things that matter to me, even if it's you know on a smaller scale? And I think that brings a sense of well-being, whether it's, you know, uh, going on a family vacation, you know, spending time with people you love, um, whether it's contributing, you know, maybe in small ways to the community, giving back in some ways. Um, so many different ways that people find meaning and purpose, I think, through through that. But, but kind of finding, uh, and I think helping people be mindful and understanding um, their spending habits, right? That could swing one direction or another. And is that really uh, helping them to find that well-being? So Beth, I promised myself I wasn't going to do this, but you gave me the perfect opportunity. There's, there's a pretty popular country song, uh, money can't buy me happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Um, <laughs> so I think that's kind of what you're, you're talking about, right? That, that, you know, money and happiness um, don't necessarily go hand in hand, but having uh, resources to help you achieve your goals, your dreams, uh, that can help, right? That can help a situation. Well, it, you know, and it is interesting that I have to backpedal slightly in terms of the the happiness, you know, and I'm, I'm again, a, a big proponent of this idea of, of well-being and, and, you know, that meaning and purpose. I did look up, uh, you know, at, at some point before I came on the show here, and I was just curious about some of the research on does happiness bring us more money? Um, I'm sorry, does does having more money bring us happiness? And and there's it was some conflicting data on that. Um, that there were some original studies that showed that happiness rose uh, for an annual income up to 75,000, and then it plateaued off, it leveled off. And then there was another study that found, no, that wasn't the case, that actually annual income, as annual income kept going up, happiness you know, went up as well. And, and then these different researchers actually came together and did another study together to try to reconcile or figure out what was going on. Um, and, and so there is some data out there that, that this, this third study showed that larger incomes are associated to some degree with ever-increasing 
happiness, you know, as that income goes up. But there is a particular subgroup of people for who um, people who are financially well off, but can be unhappy anyway, you know. So um, I, I think that in my experience working with over 30 years with people, I, I think that some amount of financial security can, you know, give people some basis of, you know, if we want to call it happiness or well-being, but that I think beyond that, um, there's a lot of other factors that, that really contribute um, and that are important to, you know, take into account as well. So just interesting um, in terms of what's out there. But I will say too, that the, the researcher who did, was one of the researchers as part of this study in terms of the money and happiness equation, also did a fascinating study looking at um, are just in terms of what um, where we pay attention, where we focus our attention in our lives. And it turns out that when we are present with what's actually happening in front of us, we are most happy. And that for many of us, much of the time, our minds can be wandering into the past, we can be in the future. And when that's happening, we tend to be less happy. So there's something to be said about how can we uh, learn to bring our attention into the present moment of what's actually here right now that we can, you know, enjoy, be present with what's right here. And that in itself can um, create that sense of happiness or, you know, again, I would call that well-being. I think that's a great point. I have a client who, we, you know, he became my client 20 years ago. He's very successful. He did not come from wealth. And when he hired me, he said to me, you know, he had a little over a million dollars at the time. He said, having this money is very stressful to me. I don't enjoy having it. I'm grateful. And 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 I know it'll help me, but I don't enjoy having it. I find it stressful. And I'll never forget that comment. And he wasn't showing off. And he, he obviously he realized the impact of a million dollars 20 years ago. But he generally meant that this was not, not only was not bringing him joy, it was bringing him anxiety. Uh-huh. Is, is there a sense of that they now have a, a deeper responsibility because they've accumulated that wealth, uh, Beth? You know, I, I think that for many people who have that kind of wealth, there can be that. There can be that pressure and responsibility and, um, you know, a, a, a sense of, you know, well, even people who, who win lotteries, you know, there's a lot of research on um, that, that in the short term, there may be a big hit of, you know, happiness in the moment, but then afterwards that that, that responsibility often, um, or that just the weight of that causes people to um, often lose, you know. I, lose well, just as a quick money. note, yeah. and then we have to take a break. I've had two clients in the past who both won the lottery. And they, and they didn't, and I didn't invest the money originally. They came to me after, and they both said to me, winning the lottery is the worst thing that ever happened to them. Mm-hmm. It turned their life completely upside down. And I know a lot of people listening to the show would say, yeah, well, I'd love to be in that position. But that's what these two folks said to me. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. 
And we'll, we'll come back to finish the conversation with uh, Dr. Beth Curlin. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. When you're thinking about where to park your cash for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing. But I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom, but the beauty of the fund is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend, it's the potential for more income. Mm -mm. Less taxes. More income. Less taxes. More income. For your cash, ask your advisor Mm -hmm. about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Symbol L-E-T-A-X. Letax. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with my partner, Dominic Tavella, and our guest this evening, Dr. Beth Curland, the author of the upcoming book, You Don't Have to Change, You Change Everything. The book is being released on March 26th. Um, Beth, you talk about buckets of well-being, I believe, is a phrase that you use. And Dom and I talk about buckets of money to be used for different things. So, you know, what we use, what we do with our buckets are different than what you do with yours. But what do you, what are you referring to when you talk about buckets of well-being? Yeah, I could share, and then I'd love to hear actually what you, you know, how you <laughs> use that as well. So, I mean, I kind of came up with this term, if you will, during the pandemic. And I was aware during that time, you know, so I'm a a therapist and sitting with lots of patients every week. And um, and especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when there was so much uncertainty and fear and all of that, um, there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of happiness. Right. That 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 was not something that was particularly or necessarily accessible to people um, in the midst of fear and, you know, lockdowns and all this stuff. But. So, you know, it it got me reflecting on nonetheless, even though, you know, we are facing all of these really challenging emotions, how can we find well-being in the midst of this? 
And can we identify, and I think for each of us, that we each have our own buckets of well-being, things that we can do, things that we engage in, things that nourish us. That um, and, and so, for example, um, for many people, connecting with others is a really important bucket of well-being. And that can show up in different kinds of ways. Um, you know, getting together with family or talk, calling a good friend on the phone or whatever that might look like, right? But that sense of connection or being part of something in a community. So that might be one bucket of well-being. Another bucket might be, um, for some people, learning something new. That when they challenge themselves and their brain in that way, you know, learning something new, that really feeds a sense of well-being for them. Um, another bucket of well-being for many people could be creativity. You know, so how do they express themselves creatively in the world? And when they do that, that that brings about a deep sense of well-being for them. Um, for other people, you know, being in nature, uh, that can bring a deep sense of well-being or moving one's body. You know, uh, some people who, who really find that when they go for a walk or that kind of thing, they experience well-being. So, so this idea that how do we, even on a given day, maybe fill one drop in our bucket. Uh, so even when things are difficult and, you know, during the pandemic for myself, you know, going back to that example might be just like, okay, you know, what? I'm just going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call somebody and I'm just going to feel that sense of connection. And so then I feel like, all right, one drop of well-being is in my bucket. And, and I may not, again, be happy. I don't have to force myself to feel something that's not there. But nonetheless, I can find a sense of well-being in that connection or being creative. You know, for me, I wrote this book during the pandemic. So that was another source of well-being of just that creative expression. But, but that's kind of how I use this concept of buckets of well-being. But I think in terms of financially, it's interesting then to, that one could think about how can I fill a drop in my bucket of financial well-being, whether that might be, um, you know, that money brings well-being when I feel like I'm making a contribution in some way. And maybe, you know, so maybe I, I, it's, I'm not at the point where I can, you know, leave a huge legacy of this or that, but can I make a small contribution or in some way that is meaningful to me this week that, that fills that bucket of well-being for me? Um, or, you know, can I um, do something for somebody else? You know, or can I maybe again, even it, let's say traveling might be a bucket of, of well-being with finances tips into that. So maybe I can't afford that huge trip right now. But is there something on a smaller scale that I can do that would fill a drop in that bucket of well-being? So I, I think it can potentially translate to finances in some ways, too, and what brings us well-being in terms of spending our money or saving our money. Well, just a quick follow-up, if I can, Dom. I will tell you definitively, the one thing that brings our clients the most happiness as it relates to how we help them is when they have a grandchild and they open up an account for their grandchild. Mm -hmm. To me, and that could just be $300 a month or $100 a month or $50 a month. But to me, and Dom, tell me if you disagree, I always find that's the most rewarding thing 
that and it, our clients may have millions, but if they're putting away a hundred bucks a month for their grandchildren, to me that's the most one of the most rewarding things that they're able to do. And, and I think that ties into Beth this this idea that it's really about quality than not quantity. That mm -hmm. these people that that have accumulated some assets through their whole life. It's with a purpose, right? It's, oh, I can educate my child or my grandchild. I can have some money to have a comfortable retirement, right? And um, I joked about the boat, but it's not so much about uh, uh, having a quantities, not for everybody anyway, for most of our clients, it's really about hey, uh, the experience in their life. And Mike hit uh, the, head, the nail on the head. If if I can provide resources to educate my grandchildren, my God, that's that's that might as well be hitting lotto. So emotionally, it's not about necessarily the size of the bucket. It's that now I can achieve that goal, that dream, that comfort uh, that that I've spent a lifetime trying to, to get to. Yeah, I love what both of you are saying. And, and I think that there's something about even what can I do with that's right here now. So even, you know, as you were suggesting, putting away $100 a month, $10 a month, whatever it is, the act of doing that itself brings some sense of reward. You don't have to wait until it accumulates to X amount, you know, in that account to feel that well-being, to feel that, you know, to fill that bucket um, that, you know, really looking for just those small ways on a daily, weekly, yearly basis that can that can do that. And Mike, how many times again have you had this where the client says, can I retire? Do I have enough resources? How much income? And like the light bulb goes on. Oh, my God. Uh, I have that. They have that moment. And I can actually just say joyful, right? My joyful moment of going, I can actually achieve that goal. I've been working so hard all my life and sacrificing and saving and scrimping. And now we're at that point that, oh my God, I've, I've achieved that goal. It's joyful. It's absolutely joyful. Mm -hmm. and, then the, and, the, and the counter is the stress of anxiety when we meet someone who hasn't saved and, and can't retire in the style that they want to. Um, and to that point, Beth, I have a psychology 101 question for you okay is is happiness a function of nature or nurture can happiness be taught or an unhappy people just born that way it's an interesting question and i would say that there's some temperament piece that can affect one's um tendency to be more you know, happy or easygoing by nature versus more. Um, there, there's a neuropsychologist um, who who talks about, you know, some people can kind of have this grumpy amygdala. The amygdala is a part of our brain that gets triggered with that fight or flight response, you know. And, and so I, I think that that temperament and genetics and biology can play some role in that. But I also think that, you know, our our environment and what we're taught and what we see and what we experience also has a, a, a big impact as well. Yeah, can I touch on that, Beth? Uh, uh, yeah. You know, both, again, both myself and Mike have been doing this for a very long time. Mike, do you remember uh, in our early days, we, we'd be talking about the Depression era 
type uh, babies who grew up and you couldn't get them to spend a dollar. They were, when I mean ferocious savers, um, they would not spend a dollar for any reason for, for on themselves. Um, all with this concept of I have to leave wealth to, to my children. The baby boom generation, a combination of both, but they certainly are more about quality of life and, and experience and spending money. And yeah, the kids are going to inherit plenty I'll leave the new generation alone for right now, but we've seen a real definitive line between generations and how they deal with and treat money. Mm. That's that's interesting to see. Yeah, just kind of that that strong distinction in the older generation versus the younger generation. Um, yeah. Uh, Mike, would you say that the younger generation have a different attitude about money than than uh, maybe our older clients? Oh, my God. Yes. There's just a sense of, I don't know, but I don't want to say a sense of entitlement, but they, they, to your point, Beth, they live in the moment. They live in the present, right? The, the younger generation definitely is more in tune with the immediate gratification. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they do struggle with the balancing act of, of living in the moment and 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 wanting to save for the future as well um unlike you know mine and dom's parents who grew up during, during the depression and they were very tight-fisted and had a real hard time spending any money in the in the moment because you always needed it for a rainy day i don't hear about rainy days anymore mm -hmm. and i'm curious from an economic perspective is there something about that you would say in terms of the economy and the world that you know younger people are growing up in now that would somehow you know tip them towards that mentality Don, let me uh, do this first and then, yeah let me please this mike yeah i was gonna let you go on yeah, that yeah, one. follow up so i'm gonna use dom's line without getting too wonky there are two barometers that economists use consumer spending for 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 necessary staples it's called consumer staples and consumer discretionary that's stuff that people buy that they don't need and the consumer has been phenomenally resilient for 10 or 15 years Whenever we think the economy is going into a tailspin it's a consumer that always pulls us out and and the consumer discretionary number never gets as weak as economists think it will so to your point and Dom will follow up on this there's an insatiable appetite for the consumer to spend basically on anything what they want if they have a job hmm, interesting and tying it into this generational discussion, Beth, I think we are dealing, and it's now the tail end of the uh, baby boom generation. Um, and as a group, they have the largest pile of wealth in the history of this country. It's just an extraordinary uh, uh, dollar of wealth uh, they've accumulated, whether it's in their 
portfolios, their retirement accounts, the value of their homes, the value of their businesses. And so this group now is in that uh, retirement stage. The tail end is actually approaching retirement and they're looking for quality. They are definitively going, okay, I've accumulated this wealth. I've accumulated this these buckets of, of dollars uh, and very substantial, in many cases, very substantial retirement dollars. And they're like, how do I spend them? And they're not particularly looking to spend them on uh, an item. Uh, it seems that uh, from all the studies both myself and Mike have read, um, they seem to want to spend those dollars on experiences, mm -hmm. on improving their quality of life. So it's really fascinating uh, to see it unravel it as we live in it, in, in our, especially in our field. That's interesting. And what I see is just uh, a lot of younger people, my sense over the you know 30 years that I've been in practice, um, a lot of younger people just really struggling right now in terms of trying to live on their own, you know, having enough money that they can even renting an apartment, for goodness sake, is so costly now. So what it takes for, you know, that younger person to be able to just be independent, I'm not sure how accurate you would say this is, but it seems to me that things have become more difficult in that way uh, for the younger generation. I see a lot of people, you know, living at home more um, or going, returning back to home after college because it's, you know, harder to uh, support oneself. But so I wonder if that, I'm not sure if that, yeah, kind of sense. So there's, there's of, definitely something to that, especially yeah. on Long Island, you know, people in their twenties, twenties and thirties, have, are having struggles lifting off. You know, they did that movie, Failure to Launch, a couple of years ago, and there's something accurate about that. And I think, you know, people in their 40s and 50s, you know, are, are buying stuff and spending money on, on experiences and 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 electronics and, 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 you know, things that they necessarily need but want. And the older folks are spending money on ex on experiences. And to Dom's point, yes, if they can help their children and grandchildren to get off the ground or bail them out. But they, I think they also feel, Beth, that what, you know, that they also have a sense of, you know, they have to teach these younger folks, you know, to, to swim on their own. And, and I don't know where happiness comes into all of that, but I would agree with you that younger folks who are living in their, you know, the home they grew up in may be more frustrated and more unhappy or maybe not. They may be perfectly content accumulating money and, and, and living in their, you know, in the house they grew up in. You would know that better than I because that's the one group that Dominic and I doesn't talk to that often. Right, right. Beth, yeah. are you getting any sense of resentment from that group that that – they're looking at uh, maybe their parents or their grandparents, and uh, who have are obviously uh, wealthy and not sharing as quickly as they might hope. Hmm. Interesting. Is getting any sense of that? I'm not sure. I would the word resentment would have popped into my mind? Maybe as much as a sense of um, I don't want to say hopelessness. That's that's way too strong. But but sort of like, geez, how am I going to ever get there? You know, we've heard that, right, Mike? That, Oh, yeah. Just that it feels daunting that it, yeah. Um, but I think so, so the you whole... Talk about, oh, you, so, so you talk about, you know, people's 
you know, nervous system and what and what and what triggers them. So, you know, are, are these are these the things that would would trigger someone's someone's anxiety? And, and is it is it the act of getting out of their home or feeling independent? What would it what would make them feel a better sense of accomplishment or or happiness? So first of all, I guess a couple of pieces there. One is that I think, at least from my experience, the people that I, you know, have worked with over the years, um, and and I'll speak for myself as well. I think uh, that money can bring up fear and anxiety, you know, for many people. Just you know, especially in terms of um, uncertainty of the things that we can't control. You know, so so there's, um, yeah, I think. Um, I just, yeah, kind of lost, lost the trade of your question though. I was going off on the other direction. That's okay. Um, I, I guess well, yeah. my, my question is, you know, if someone is struggling to, to, you know, get off the ground, is, is there a point of demarcation where that, that they have to accomplish X in order to feel that level of, of happiness right. or is it, yeah. to your point, put one one drop into the bucket a day and, and not worry about five years from now. So I think right in terms of and, and kind of combining what I what I started going off to in terms of how do we work with some of these difficult emotions that come up around money. But for um you know the example of the person you're talking about, I think it can be helpful to come back to this idea of personal agency and what's in our sphere of influence. So to look at, you know, what is it that I can do today? Um, or even, and then breaking it down into small steps. You know, so I'm thinking of some young people who, again, may be feeling a little daunted about the future and so forth. And just being able to take very small actions and being able to, uh, lay out a way that they can save, you know, e even just a small amount, but the idea of action itself binds anxiety. So if we can identify, you know, something that I have personal agency over and be able to just begin to take some small actions, it can help to manage, you know, some of those more overwhelming emotions, if you will. Beth, we're getting close to running out of time, and there's a question I've been dying to ask you. Did, did you yeah. sense at all that during COVID, you mentioned uh, you did quite a bunch of therapy sessions and helping yeah. people during COVID. Did you find their, their attitudes about money and life changed because of COVID? Yeah, I, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I think that my sense is that it did cause people to reflect a bit more on what was really important to them and what what mattered. Um, that's something that that I saw. I think certainly um, there's been a whole shift in in lifestyle and working, you know, more people working from home, spending more time, you know, uh, parents being able to spend more time with with kids, you know, at home and that kind of thing. So it's sort of a whole shift in terms of just people reflecting on yeah how do how do i want to spend my 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 days my weeks you know in terms of what's most important so that that i would say jumps out at me beth yeah. this may be a dumb question 
is the opposite of happiness unhappiness or is it anxiety or fear or some other emotion? Mm. That's that's a good question. Um, I think that all of those things can, um, you know, so yes, directly unhappiness, you know, can, can kind of be an opposite. But I think when we're caught up in um, what I would say more of our survival emotions, um, so that could be fear, that could be anxiety or worry or anger or, um, you know, those kinds of emotions that, um, that that takes us away from well-being, you know, that in some way any of those can, be, can contribute to our unhappiness, if you will, um, and that when we can um, uh, find ways of, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a concise way to say this, but, but essentially we have these more, uh, survival circuits, but, but, you know, primitive circuits in our brain that, that are, that bring about the, those more difficult emotions, the fight, flight, fear, that kind of thing. And we also have um, when we can experience more cues of safety in our environment around us, we're able to tap into more of these emotions of well-being, contentment, calmness, um, and uh, clarity, confidence, compassion, all that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, com complicated question, I think. Um, Sorry. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so again, Okay, Dom, you were going to say the same thing I was going to say. We're, we're getting close to running out of time. And one last time, because you brought it up a few times, I really loved it. The ability to and how you deal with stress, whether it's about money, whether it's about life, these small steps to, to accomplishing a bigger goal. Maybe spend the last closing minutes on talking about helping people. How do they deal with that? In terms of dealing with, uh, yeah, how to deal with stress. Yeah, you, you mentioned a few times that, you know, small steps, baby steps, solving. Yeah, things. yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, a couple things, but just when we can identify, you know, what is in our sphere of influence, what do I have control over, and just take small steps in that direction, that can really help with um, with anxiety, with stress. And I think also by being able to really look at what's actually here in front of me, um, versus where our mind sometimes catastrophizes, runs into the future worst case scenarios that aren't actually here. And that can cause us a lot of distress. And so when we can recognize that our own thinking can contribute and bring it back to what's actually here in front of us, it becomes more workable that we can focus on. Excellent. You know, yeah. Beth, 30 seconds. Tell us again the name of the book and how people could get it and when will it be available? Yeah, so it's it's called You Don't Have to Change to Change Everything, Six Ways to Shift Your Vantage Point, Stop Striving for Happy and Find True Well-Being. It will be available on March 26th, and uh, people can get it uh, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, any of the major uh, channels like that. And I also have a website, bethcurlin.com, where there's a link as well. We appreciate your time this evening. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you for the insight. Thank you so much for having me.
You're welcome. And Dom and I will be back next week with a special guest, uh, Phil Blancato, a returning uh, guest and strategist and uh, friend of the market. And uh, Dom, we'll, we'll see you down the road. Looking forward to it. Thanks, guys. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you, Beth. Good night. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic and Michael will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.